Hello, welcome to Talking Anthropology podcast. Today, Shema and I are with a very special guest, Dr. Alex Chavez. And any introduction would fall short here, probably, <laughs> but I will try to do my best. Dr. Chavez is the Nancy O'Neill Associate Professor of Anthropology in the Department of Anthropology and a faculty fellow of the Institute for Latino Studies at the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of award-winning book, Sounds of Crossing, which is an ethnographic research on Huapango Aribeño and explores Mexican migrant communities and Mexican sounds across physical, oral and cultural borders in relation to the contemporary politics of immigration in the U.S. On top of being a cultural anthropologist, Dr. Chavez is trained in linguistic anthropology, ethnomusicology, and folklore. So today we will be talking about his research, which focuses on Latinx sounds and orality in relation to race, placemaking, and the intimacies that bind lives across physical and cultural borders. So as you know, for this season, we are exploring the question, who is an anthropologist? So we will also be talking about Dr. Chavez's experience of being an artist, scholar, and producer. So welcome, Dr. Chavez. How are you? And are you happy with this introduction or would you like to add to it? <laughs> that, that was great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for, for the invitation to, you know, have this conversation. And yeah, just interested and uh, looking forward to your questions. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, can you first of all, tell us a little bit about maybe your first research and how you crossed paths with anthropology? Certainly. Um, so I can preface that with, I guess, something that you mentioned, it just in terms of what do I do academically and, and beyond that. Um, you know, because I identify in part in terms of just what I what I do and what I'm interested in, you know, as, a, as an artist, as an academic, as a musician, I also produce. And so throughout my career, in many ways, both like creatively and in kind of formal academic realms, try to integrate and calibrate both my scholarly and artistic projects um, into publicly engaged work with the aim of reaching wider audiences that are interested in some of the themes that you, you mentioned, right? These questions are around borders or Latinx culture, identity, contemporary lived politics. And so, you know, as an artist or as a scholar, I've worked across a number of discrete domains, right? The academy or the stage or the studio. But in part, always with the aim of trying to integrate my experiences or perspectives and talents into creative practice that is anthropological or, or artistic in scope. And so, to you know, that is a you know my positionality here, I guess, to kind of circle back to your question. You know, I came to anthropology, I think, in a way that it, it was animated by a, a research project that sort of I found myself kind of being engaged in. But that research project, which was the topic of my dissertation, which that's what I sourced for, for the book, Sounds of Crossing. While that became sort of formal academic research, I came at that as an anthropologist in some ways as a practitioner. And I talk about this in the book that, you know, as a musician, as someone interested by virtue of my own sort of background and, and assumed musical heritage, I met and encountered and then found myself, you know, engaging in, in music making with this community of practice of Wapango Ribeño in Central Texas. And so I, I was an undergraduate at University of Texas at Austin. And, you know, I found myself, you know, as a student of, of music and, and wanting to learn and already being interested in several of these adjacent kind of musical styles to Wapango. Oh yeah, play, play music. And then out of that grew or emerged questions that I had just generally as, you know, someone who at that point as an undergrad, I, I had this sense of wanting to go to graduate school, but not being quite sure like what I wanted to do or study. And the questions that emerged for me 
you know, were really animated by the fact that, you know, largely the community of, of practice, the people that were part of this kind of context of, of music and music making were largely migrants or undocumented migrants. And so being interested in, in issues around migration and borders and race just generally. I sort of put these two things together where, you know, how does expressive culture, music in particular, and even more broadly sound or orality participate in in and how these these particular migrants gave meaning to their own migration. And yeah, and it involves all these broader questions. And so just being interested in that, you know, I remember reaching out to um at that point two individuals who became part of my dissertation committee, Richard Flores, who became my chair, and then Jose Limon, and sort of asking them like, well, you know, so I'm, I play, and they, they knew I play music and all the rest of it, but, you know, so saying like, well, you know, I'm engaged with these musicians and, and their communities and all these questions are kind of emerging for me. And I already had a sense because of their work, both Jose Limon and Richard Flores, who were anthropologists slash folklorists who, you know, largely focused their, their ethnographic renderings on expressive culture. But I remember asking them like, well, you know, I find myself in this situation as an artist. Could I study this? And they're like, yes, of course. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, how or what, like what? And they're like, anthropology. So I was like, all right, well, sign me up. <laughs> so so then what ended up happening is then applied to graduate school, multiple places, but I, in a kind of unconventionally, like I decided to stay at the University of Texas at Austin. And there are many reasons for that, but primarily is because of the really robust sort of intellectual kind of tradition there at Texas, where you have this integrative approach to expressive culture that draws upon what, well, clearly anthropology, but more specifically linguistic anthropology, but also these schools of thought and sort of academic practice where you have this integration and emergence of ethnography of speaking, performance-centered approaches to ethnographic practice. But then also adjacent to that was this robust sort of tradition in folklore and ethnomusicology and no less what we would call a borderlands anthropology. So yeah, it just made sense to stay there, you know, to, to get that kind of training. And so that's how I sort of landed in anthropology, right? And so it was by virtue of being an artist that engaged in and in and with communities that then these questions emerged that I was compelled to want to explore or and having mentors who were like, well, yeah, just study anthropology. <laughs> All right, well, I'll do that. Did you have any like prior exposure to anthropology, taking a class or, you know, reading I, a book, something I, like that? Yeah, I did. So, you know, as an undergraduate, I, I double majored in uh, at Texas, what they call government, which is political science and then and Mexican-American studies. And, and so Mexican-American studies, my focus largely was what they had a couple of tracks there. One of them was the sort of cultural studies approach. And so so there definitely was exposed to, you know, this larger sense of the tradition of cultural studies as a kind of theoretical disposition, which has, you know, kind of its own sort of history, first wave when you think of you know, the kind of work of Raymond Williams and all those folks, and include this sort of Birmingham school tradition, right? So I had that sense of theoretical approaches to expressive culture, but then, yeah, there was a lot of anthropology too, in particular, as I mentioned, this kind of robust tradition of a borderlands anthropological approach coming out of the University of Texas. So, you know, ethnography as a kind of a centerpiece of that. So I had a sense of that. And then also, just prior to going to graduate school, I, I did take an orientations course, which is for undergrads, but it was largely in sort of social theory and in anthropology. And and some of that I was familiar with, a lot of it I was not. And so that I think did help me then getting to, to graduate school and kind of what one does when you get to graduate school, the sort of the boot camp 
of uh, kind of theory and all the rest. So yeah, I did have some exposure, but I think not like one would if you did sort of major in anthropology or something like that. But I felt comfortable, I think, when I stepped into grad school around what I knew and how to approach, you know, then uh, courses and all the rest that one has to kind of do as part of your journey as a grad student. I find it very fascinating that usually performers go into anthropology. It's so fitting because anthropology, when you're in the field, like practicing it, it's almost like an embodied experience, right? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I do talk about this in, in the book to an extent, but it's something that I definitely see as part of my practice and kind of engagement here. And this is that, you know, there are different sort of loci of sort of knowledge production. And to me, the sort of space of performance is one of those, right? So, um, and it's one in which, again, to go back to this sort of, these approaches in some ways that are sort of emergent from folkloristics or kind of performance-centered approaches is, is that, unfortunately, oftentimes, you know, when we think and, and approach ethnography, the interview is the sort of the methodological kind of practice that we kind of rely on most, for better or for worse. But I think oftentimes that context can impede us from becoming sort of engaged or conversant in people's own kinds of genres of communication. And, and those are varied, right? Sometimes they take on the time of the form performance. And it also can sort of set up certain kinds of expectations around the kind of the interview process and what one expects, right? Or what you know, there's a power dynamic there. It's not without its own sorts of decisions around sort of representation and how you sort of engage with people to sort of find things out, right? You know, the interview is, I think, useful, but it, ha it has those sorts of limitations. And so for me, being engaged with performance was definitely one, again, context of learning, getting a sense of performance as a certain kind of communication, what it accomplished, how it sort of flowed. And I guess to your point is that it's definitely an embodied situation, right? That, you know, as a way of understanding the space of performance as a site of knowledge production that is about to go broad here, you know, it is about sort of affect, it is about sound, it is about orality and how these seemingly ethereal or immaterial sort of aspects of being in a place and being in a moment in some ways are like the most meaningful, right? And so I fully sort of accepted that and stepped into that and very grateful that really allowed me a sort of level of understanding, I guess, or access, I suppose. But I think more importantly, it was through that that I had a particular angle of vision, or in the sense of sort of, of listening, that, that relied heavily on the sensorial, heavily on embodiment. And it's something that I've taken with me and sort of tried to think kind of thoughtfully about in my work since then, right, in, in different contexts or capacities or different questions that I've tried to ask, etc. So, but no, that that's that's a great question and point of departure to think about ethnographic practice. Um, and at least in my case, that's what I've tried to do. Yeah, I think it's also like interesting to think about from the perspectives of your interlocutors, right? How they related to you. Our other question is like within your field, who was an anthropologist? How did you introduce yourself? Yeah, because in their minds, you're also a performer, but also a researcher. How did you navigate kind of that space? Yeah, that's, that's great. So yeah, I mean, admittedly, by virtue of performing and playing music, 
that I think really coded like how people understood me. And so I think, and no, I, I know that in, in many ways, like that's for a lot of people, how they saw me first and understanding for well that I was also researching. Right. But that seemed in some ways like background for my identity with people I was working with and performing with. And so there was that in terms of how I understood how they saw me. And, and to the extent that I, when I sat down with people to interview, quote unquote, oftentimes, you know, with life histories or just conversations around art and migration. And oftentimes those formal sorts of contexts did not happen until years later, right? Because I, I was building relationships with people through music making and all the rest. And through that sort of process, getting to know people and a lot of their life story and their perspectives, again, on sort of migration more broadly, you know, US-Mexico, their experiences and relationships, but also their sort of experiences and relationships to art, right? Their art and as artists. Those are things that I was sort of encountering through just kind of the everyday kind of flow of conversation or music making or, you know, sort of kind of being there. Right. Such that when I f would finally kind of, oh, well, can, you know, let's, let's have a formal conversation here, an interview. By and large, a lot of what I was asking, like I, I already kind of was familiar with, but I, I just wanted to hear the story now. Right. In, in this other kind of way. And so, yeah, I, you know, so that that sort of influenced my kind of dynamic and, and approach, at least to, to that particular research for Sounds of Crossing. But yeah, I, I mean, I guess to your point, I mean, there is this bridging i guess and in, in my case that happened in terms of my positionality as like well how do people see you right as researcher as fellow musician or and also in my case too you know my you know my own story is very much tethered to a couple of things that they could also in some ways identify with and that's one well i'm i'm a child of migrants right and my parents were undocumented for a good part of my childhood so that is something that resonates in terms of my just lived experience and then also part of my family is from that region right and i have a sort of a family connection to you know coming from like a musical family and coming from you know that sort of tethered to that tradition that was also another sort of point of of kind of reference for how they kind of understood me just as a person slash of course anthropologist <laughs> in that kind of formal sense of research but yeah yeah i'm thinking about like you then like in graduate school this means you conducted research in the same state that you went to grad school right so those spaces for instance for me like it's they're in different countries so there is this mm -hmm. really clear distinction of like moments of engagements and moments of estrangement that i experienced which is kind of blurred with the pandemic now but you know that's how it used to be in in our discipline mostly so how was that experience for you navigating you know research and grad school you know, official classes that fellow anthropologists and then going and doing field work. That's, that's great that you bring that up because I think I, I was engaged in something that subsequently colleagues of mine, one colleague in particular, Aime Villarreal, who's at uh, Our Lady of the Lake University there in San Antonio, Texas, she refers to this question that you're bringing up as a kind of polemic, I suppose. She refers to it as home place ethnography, but better still, in a way, she would, there's a turn of phrase here that she uses, instead of field work, she's calling it homework, in the sense that <laughs> this is great. <laughs> yeah, in, in yeah. the sense, and in, in it's in the sense that 
in terms of your question to think about anthropology more broadly as a kind of as a project, right? Yes, of knowledge production, but one that's and we all know this in the writing culture and postmodernist turn in anthropology in the eighties, the sort of reflexivity around not just positionality, but also the complicated and very fraught and problematic past of anthropology as a whole, right? In some ways in collusion with colonialism and empire building and right. And so there is a way that tethered to this sort of project or this notion of fieldwork is a kind of fetishizing of going somewhere else, somewhere far away. The field is far away, right? The field, those are where we can sort of apply our objective, right, perspective or, or where, where one can approach some sense of objectivity because you are detached from a particular context, right? Or what we can then indict as being this sort of, yeah, this colonial gaze, right? That, that That's baked into this. And I think, you know, a lot of us are sort of choose to deal with it or not. You know, I think for me and a number of colleagues of mine that are folks of color in the academy, but specifically in anthropology, this is a question. This is one way of interrogating the project of anthropology. And then more specifically, to go back to my colleague, Jaime Villarreal, this notion of turn of phrase of homework, right? Not field work, but homework in the sense that these questions and dynamics that in terms of the human condition and cultural forms as the kind of charter of anthropology to understand, they're happening all around us. So at home, right? And, and that home can be very fraught and home can be multiple places and home is not an easy sort of category of analysis either. But the fact is, is that the context in which you're embedded in, so to your question, right, when I was in graduate school and, you know, living alongside in many ways with my interlocutors, people I was doing work with and sort of playing music with them and, and sort of getting to know them over the years, that was my context. And I, I frankly didn't see anything fraught about that personally. But to me, it just was quite a, this is where I was and what I was doing. But in some ways, I'm realizing through the process of kind of reflecting on that whole sort of moment of my life and situation, and now through conversation and dialogue with a number of other colleagues, anthropologists, ethnographers, that, you know, this notion of homework, of the sort of critical reflexivity around how all these dynamics and questions that we would otherwise fetishize as being somewhere else, like, no, that we're, we're there, we're, we're in them. And whether we're thinking about race or migration or borders or gender, or class, sexuality, all these sort of categories of sort of lived experience, right, that sort of are the slices of, of, of how people live, the politics that surround their lives, the sort of situations that they're in, the communities that they're a part of, like, it's all here, too. And it's also polemic, and it's also fraught, and, and it's also, I think, quite generative. And that's, I think something that I subsequently sort of reflected on that like, yeah, it definitely made sense that I didn't necessarily think that there was an issue with kind of how I was sort of both going to school and doing research in kind of the same place, right? That it just felt fine to me from the beginning, but I understand subsequently like like why and the politics around that. And I mentioned my colleague Villarreal because um, actually, and I can talk about this a little bit more later, but she has this wonderful chapter in this edited volume. I, I co-edited it with Gina Perez that just came out in April. It's apropos what we're talking about. It's called Ethnographic Refusals, uh, Unruly Latinidades. And so um, it came out of an advanced seminar, SAR, right? This sort of bastion of North American anthropology. And so 
Uh, but she writes in that editive volume this really wonderful essay chapter that deals precisely w- with this because we get together at SAR, which is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And the SAR itself has very interesting and I think polemic sort of history. But Aime is from Santa Fe. And she knows <laughs> she knows that context, right, is that that being her home and knows also the sort of the whole politics around not just SAR, but sort of Santa Fe as this place of sort of North American anthropology and and all the sort of issues that that entails. So she reflects on that as a Chicana, Chicana anthropologist, ethnographer, that what she's doing in terms of her work to looking at that context, but particularly this sort of native indigenous context in New Mexico is she's doing homework is what she's doing. As you said, it's like far away is fetishized. It's also almost academically, aesthetically more pleasing to go far away and, I don't know, have funds. And <laughs> having talked about grad school, I would like to ask you about if you have a writing routine or did you have a writing routine during your grad school? We will also gonna, like, in relation to that, maybe I should just go ahead and ask, do you have like a talking anthropology routine that you think is contributing to your work? You know, writing is very much about finished work or like drafts for yourself. In this podcast, we are fans of unfinished works and more of like talking and half-baked anthropology, sort of displaying the, the process of doing anthropology. And then, you know, highlighting the lack of maybe interaction between anthropologists in a more non-written way. Okay, yeah. So that's that's really interesting. So I guess there are like three responses at one. I inherently think that <laughs> all sort of ethnographic practice or project within anthropology that once again is inherently unfinished, right? Personally, always. You know, you set out to do, find something out, contribute to this broader of understanding of the human experience and, and you're sort of lending your perspective, right? It's not the ultimate sort of answer to whatever that context is, I think. And if you're lucky, you can walk away generating further questions. So I that's how I think about it um, in terms of just this unquestionably unfinished. I think writing-wise, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have like some set routine in terms of like formal academic writing, you know, whether I was in grad school or, or even as I continue to do now, I think that this... <laughs> constant sense of like there's always something else to be done and or that it's always a challenge I think is always there you know I can't say that writing to me comes any easier now than it did when I was in graduate school no I I encountered the same challenges and the same frustrations and yeah but you know I feel like if anything that one of the things that animates me apart from just clearly like anybody right you're passionate hopefully passionate about the work that you're doing, right? And you want to explore questions, etc. One thing that animates me is I like reading other people just as a way of, one, as a point of reference, but also because it, it might inform my thinking. But then also, you know, sometimes I'm inspired by the way other people write. And so there, part of me wants to aspire also to sort of write similarly, I suppose. So that's one thing I think that animates me in my process, I suppose. But to your kind of final point here about talking anthropology, or, or I guess the, the other forms that right anthropological quote-unquote knowledge can take, I do think that there is this kind of epistemic imperialism that is within academia more broadly, but it's the anthropology for our purposes, that is this sort of scriptocentric, right? It's this sort of, it's the written text. That's the ultimate form. of. But I'm a believer that privileging that form, I think, necessarily has the potential to erase existing forms of, let's say, performed knowledge, performed knowledge production that's associated with other kinds of 
intellectual kinds of projects. And often those are sort of communities of practice that are marginalized. And so there's a question here of us potentially attempting to pivot from the context of Western epistemology, right? So for me, just as a, an example, that's how I think of like sound in my creative practice, for instance, right? So whether it is performing in a certain community of practice, let's say when I was doing the work around Wapangorreño, or for me, as I was mentioning when we first started, these adjacent contexts, right? The stage or the studio. So I'll give you one very specific example. And in some ways, this also addresses this question around a sort of ongoing work, I suppose. So when I published the book, I was fortunate that I invited to give sort of formal lectures on, on the book for a good number of years, like three years. I was giving talks here in the States, but also gave some internationally. And so, and largely those were sort of formal lectures. But one iteration of, I guess, a presentation was something that was far more performance-based, which meant that I would, yes, talk about the book, read some ethnographic passages in part, but then also perform. So music, my compositions in part that were, that grew out of the moment when I was doing that research over years. And people seemed to respond to that really well. And so then I was kind of inspired to then, I was like, well, I'll, let me do this, but as an, on, like within, within the context of an ensemble. And so I, here in Chicago, I reached out to a number of uh, friends, musicians, artists. Long story short, number of people I was able to put together to, to basically do that, but within the context of a larger ensemble. So, so the sort of, and explore this idea of kind of ethnographic songwriting. And I was able to do that once here in Chicago. And then in the context of wanting to grow that project, I applied for some grants and luckily was able to, to receive support. But then COVID happened. And so the idea was largely to explore this in a live setting. Well, as you know, like no, no live performances were happening. But so I knew that eventually after having been able to develop this in a live setting that I would want to record an album or of sorts, right? And go into the studio and do it based on it. But that would have come after, again, exploring this live and doing that. Unfortunately, we couldn't do that. So the next sort of solution was like, okay, we'll go into the studio to sort of do this. But I wasn't really interested in just documented what we had done live because that wasn't the point because that was just a one thing. The idea was to grow it. But in lieu of that, what I did was I, I reached out to a good friend of mine. His name is Quetzal Flores. He's based in Los Angeles. He's activist, musician, Grammy award-winning producer. I've known him for almost two decades. And basically explained everything I just explained to you. And I was like, would you want to come and produce this record? Because not being able to grow it in a live setting, bringing someone in from the outside to help you reimagine things is the next best thing. And he was on board and we started making a record, which is pretty much done now. But to me, you know, that as is a pivot away from this sort of scriptocentric way of thinking through kind of anthropology or, or knowledge production, right? Because it's it's in some ways begging these questions of like, well, what what forms should scholarship take, or what should what is the capacity of art in terms of entering into or addressing these these broader questions, right? That we might sort of think about as like a particular kind of intellectual engagement, and or what should like live performance accomplish, right? And those are questions, and I don't have answers to them, but I know that, at least for me, that I, at least within the context of this project, which is called Sonorous Present, I, I mentioned that, but, you know, that's, yeah, those are questions that I'm trying to address with this, with, with it's ostensibly an album. Um, and last thing I'll mention, like, you know, in the context of it, like one of the things that we did just to think through songwriting and sound and all the rest, like one of the really fascinating things that we did at, again, 
Getzel's um, suggestion, and again, him as producer, and this is, again, he's brilliant. This is one of the reasons why I like, wanted to work with him is that he had this really amazing idea. You know, he, he said before one of the times that we got together actually in Los Angeles to, to work and kind of workshop things, he said, do you have, you know, any field recordings that you would like are significant to you or that? And I was like, yes, of course, I have too many. I spent years <laughs> documenting performances and things like that. And he's like, okay, well, pick a number of them out. I use it, whatever you want, just let's. And so, yeah, I, I kind of curated this collection of like found sound and interviews and performance and et cetera. And yeah, we spent some time sort of going through that sort of material, you know, sonically. And what we ended up doing, you know, at his suggestion, we would then sample those sort of recordings. And we ended up making a number of them as part of or foundational to the songwriting process. This is to say that instead of literally invoking, let's say, an experience through lyrical content or words, for instance, instead of invoking that experience or even referencing a place or talking about it or whatever, rather than do that, it was like you bring that place into the context of the song sonically this is to say for instance instead of talking about a field site for instance why don't you bring the sounds of that field site into the song right as a sample so it's there so it's already integrated fully sonically into the composition so we we did a lot of that so you know the sort of places and and people and moments that i was sort of in and engaged with are kind of like slathered all over this record sonically and to me that's that's an ethnographic approach, right? So how do you, is, is, a, is a certain kind of ethnographic rendering that's creative in scope that, again, at his suggestion was something that we that we did um, in terms of the production process here. But I think, you know, just to conclude, I mean, that, that in some ways is, is an example, back to your question, around an anthropology or an ethnographic approach that's unfinished or that takes a different form beyond sort of writing, right? In some, you know, uh, in its formal sense that at least for me, attempting to to do or engage with yeah this is so inspiring thank you so much it's also like interesting to think about when like the form of knowledge projection changes the implications for the collaboration where you like writing is oftentimes seen as like this more of a solitary practice but yeah it's fascinating to hear how it kind of shifted for you oh definitely yeah i think that's a really interesting point right the sort of <laughs> the solitary sense of, of writing and experience, which also is also, I think, particularly in anthropology, is very much reflective of what Renato Rosaldo calls in terms of, to return to one of your previous questions or comments around like fieldwork, is that this sort of fetishizing of like the lone ethnographer. And so, but when you engage, at least, you know, from my perspective, having engaged in this particular project, you know, of, of producing a, a studio album was incredibly collaborative. The creative process, the engineering process, the production aspect, the writing, all the rest. I mean, a very, just an open sort of dialogic exchange with everybody in, involved, uh, which is a very different way <laughs> of sort of working, right, than we often are accustomed to. Yeah, I was also thinking about the language, usually like anthropologists are translators but what you mentioned about you know instead of like quoting or like translating actually people listening to the recordings you know which were kind of field notes i guess totally um, totally yeah. totally and oftentimes we don't have an, an outlet for for that right for how do you expose others to that experience right and and often because we have field recordings or we have you know, found sound that we sort of 
document, etc. And sometimes you wish people could just listen, right? And up the, the sort of platforms or avenues for that aren't readily sort of. It's not where anthropology is right now, right? So, but yeah, it's it's fascinating. Uh, at least it has been sort of generative for me to engage in this to you know be like, well, here's instead of me talking about this place, here's what it sounds like, you know, and interwoven with sure a composition or etc. I feel so jolly right now because I feel like you just elevated our premise of the show. <laughs> Instead of not just answering about like talking anthropology, because to be honest, really, what we are basically trying to do is just to have a platform to share that knowledge, like um, mispronouncing things like me and Shema, you know, with our accents and everything. Just not only like learn anthropology, but also like have a feeling of anthropological knowledge so it, it was really inspiring thank you no I, I no thank you i you know having conversations like this are one i think can be incredibly like generative and thought-provoking in terms of just allowing for the or motivating the kind of emergence of questions right but then also i mean to your point you know as a platform as a another outlet i think it's just good you know like we should be talking more and more publicly in these sort of engaged public facing kinds of conversations around work sure but just broader questions around you know what we're all engaged in or trying to do as anthropologists or, or ethnographers more more specifically in a way that's i think beyond uh, you know the sort of what we formally typically kind of witness which are like panels or you know at conferences which have their place and, and are important but to me this is this is not that this is something else and i think it's equally as as i think important yeah we can now shift gears and to our last segment what, what we call small talk it's a speed round with more light-hearted questions if you're ready okay <laughs> <laughs> so our first question is do you have any pet peeves specific to the academic spheres oh my lord uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh i can Short answer, yes. Now, if you want a specific one, uh, you would say, <laughs> going back to the conference setting, maybe when, you know, when you're at a conference and like time limits, when people don't adhere to those, you know, especially if you've been doing this for a long time, you should, you should know uh, how long, if you're reading a paper, how long that should be for 15 minutes or whatever, and when that doesn't happen, because it just stresses everybody out. <laughs> everybody's like uh and that's not fun that's okay for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely uh do you believe in astrology uh i do not but i i i've learned what my sign is because people tell me but i, I have no <laughs> sense of astrology or really believe it <laughs> sorry <laughs> uh, do you mind if you share your sign <laughs> oh uh appar apparently i'm a capricorn and I don't know really Cap. what that means. Oh, okay. That really explains your reaction to conference uh, time limits, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> so, do you have any cherished object? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I'd say some musical instruments that I've inherited over the mm -hmm. years. That are, that are kind of like heirlooms, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Both, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have. I don't mind being up super early, and you know, I stay up late as well. So yeah, definitely. That's the hardest one, right? <laughs> <laughs> you never got that answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so who would you be if you weren't an anthropologist or a 
position? Oh my, uh, that's a tough question. I don't know. I think I'd, I'd like, uh, I'd build things. Maybe like, uh, be like a do construction of some sort, probably. Uh, okay. I don't know what that would look like, but that, that's, I think there's something satisfying about that. My, my father is uh, worked construction for a very long time. And so, and I used to, when I was a kid, help him, you know, work, but like, so I have a sense of that. It's very hard work, but I think, yeah, maybe something like that. Is there any specific thing that you have felt that you can share? Well, with my dad, we used to, I used to help him do a lot of like wood framing, like houses okay. and like, and drywall and things like that. But we okay. did it all. And then I've built a couple of things, you know, like benches and things like that, but nothing like too involved, but like, uh, because I had a sense of it, you know, just having done it as a kid, but I can't say I'm terribly good at it, but I, <laughs> but I think that, that would be something I think I probably, that's what I would maybe be doing. Is there a TV show or a movie or an ethnography that you love to hate? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I really like your reaction to our question. <laughs> they will not be edited out. <laughs> yeah. No, leave it in. Leave it in. Uh, a TV show that I love to hate or a movie I love to hate. Oh, man. I don't know. You know, yeah, I, I would go more with movies and I would go with like really terrible movies that don't stand the test of time. They're good sort of academic sort of ethnographic objects like so i'm thinking specifically like there's this really terrible genre of movies like from the set, late 60s and 70s early 70s or even into all the 70s that are you know like about new york and sort of this broader like the urban question right so this really terrible sort of like uh, stuff around crime and poverty and race and stuff but they're like these critically acclaimed movies right so i think you know like the french connection or something like that comes to mind right like gene hackman and you're like it's an entertaining movie right but you know but so you're like you're like on one level like it's good on another be like guys oh, it's terrible <laughs> like just because yeah it's very problematic so i i feel like stuff like that yeah you have to kind of be like okay you know i, I can see this as art like what it was at that moment and all the rest and appreciate it to some degree but also like oh it's also kind of makes it makes you cringe i think things like that that i've gone back to i, I fr frankly i think like a lot of people like during the pandemic like i found myself watching things and I was <laughs> like especially stuff like that that like one either i hadn't seen in a while or two i was like i should probably watch that movie that is like and you would you'd be like oh man yeah I think stuff like that probably is a kind of love to hate sort of situation, probably. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and <laughs> lastly, <laughs> what would be like a tiny but useful advice for people who would like to become anthropologists? Oh, I, I think I sort of mentioned this before. You can't assume that this is the case, but that try to, you know, we're all going to engage in, I mean, as anthropologists, right, engage in some sort of formal research, right, or some sort of doing ethnography, like going somewhere, finding something out. You know, I think just be open to, well, two things, like one, hopefully be very passionate about, like, whatever it is that you're going to be engaged with, right, and the questions that you're asking. You know, I think that's key to it being fulfilling and being even fun, right, and even just, and also generative. But then also like within that context, like just being really open to where that journey takes you because you don't, you don't really know. I, I, the, you know, graduate students that I've had the sort of privilege of, of working with, I, I always sense, and I remember being there too, I always sense the kind of the subtle or maybe sometimes not so subtle anxiety of like when you're going to go 
do your research or when things aren't going the way that you thought or or you have to pivot for certain ways. And I'm not diminishing that that can be difficult, but I think having the perspective of being open to knowing that, yeah, things are going to change and shift. And sometimes, not sometimes, I think oftentimes that's where the sort of good stuff is in terms of like the work or the experience, totally unexpected, uh, sometimes can be the most sort of rewarding and the most sort of revealing and illuminating kind of experience for sure. I would say, I would say that. Yeah, that's great because especially for our cohort of students who kind of did field work during the pandemic, that was necessary <laughs> to be flexible and yeah. Definitely. Yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I had students who had to sort of adapt, adjust, pivot, etc. And yeah, that can be very hard. I understand that. But I also feel like yeah. having a certain kind of approach or perspective to those challenges, I think, could be helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Oh, likewise. Thank you for, for the invitation and, and good luck with your continued conversations. Thank you very much, Dr. Chavez. It was a really inspiring thing. I am very sure you took a lot from it and our audience will really <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you again. <laughs>